Today's guest is probably the most famous doctor on the planet right now. After his groundbreaking interview on the Joe Rogan podcast, he is a British cardiologist, public health campaigner, author, and an advocate against the use of COVID vaccines, and is currently traveling the world sharing his knowledge on how we can make medicine great again. Please welcome Dr. Asim Malhotra. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I discovered you at the beginning of the year, um, literally from like a little WhatsApp chat, uh, that someone said, look, take a look at this guy. He's just blown up the VVC. And I was like, oh, what's this? So I had a little look and it was you boycotting a interview uh, where you were on there to speak about one thing and then you spoke about uh, something else. And I was just like, I love you. I just love that you're out there, that you're not afraid and that you're bold. And I was very much at the beginning of my podcast journey and I was like, I need to get him on my podcast. So here we are on the rooftop at Novu here in Ibiza. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Nicola. And uh, I've got to say, this is probably the most idyllic uh, place I've ever been interviewed in my life. <laughs> it's really beautiful over there. Really beautiful. We made it extra special for you. So let's take it back right to the very, very beginning of where it all began. Because, you know, if people go onto your Instagram, you have just been on the Joe Rogan podcast. You know, you're so out there right now. But what I really want to know is who's the man behind this incredible rock star that's basically changing the world? Well, I'm, to be honest, I'm I'm just a regular doctor that wants to be the best possible clinician or physician I can be. That's it, right? Um, and in terms of my background, so I, I grew up in um, in Greater Manchester in a town called Staley Bridge. Uh, both my parents were general practitioners and uh, relevant, I think, to what has shaped me as a person and in terms of my advocacy definitely came from um you know values that were instilled into me by my parents who sadly now have both passed um but i would say you know um i couldn't have chosen better parents right uh two of the most kind compassionate uh wise humans i've ever known in my life so i feel privileged to have been their son and uh, and I think that definitely, you know, I was grounded in, um, you know, something that I grew up with was always about doing, you know, you have to, um, you have to give back to society, do something for the community. That was something that was in our household and it was, uh, uh, yeah, and, and they, you know, they led by example um, as, as doctors and the way that they conducted themselves in society. Um, I also had uh, an older brother who had Down syndrome. And uh, of course, you know, any, um, any family or any couple that has a child that's disabled, of course, that, that is a very, that whole process itself is, is very traumatic to go through and you have to adapt to that. But I think the one thing is that Amit, his name was Amit, I think he taught us as well um, about being compassionate. Down's kids generally are very loving. Yeah. They're very, very loving. They literally just, they smile, they hug. Um, so I, I grew up obviously with Amir and he again sadly passed away when I was 11 uh, and he was 13. And then I went to a school, um, which I'm very proud of, called Manchester Grammar School. And, uh, you know, I would, uh, obviously I'm biased here, but I like, call it the best school in the world. Um, and I think that also was a school which wasn't just very good for academics. I mean, I think during the 80s, it was like the number one school in the country for academics, but it also emphasized thinking outside the box, a lot of extracurricular activities. 
But their motto, I think, underpinned the values of the school, and that was in Latin, saper aude. It means dare to be wise. And, uh, you know, I carried that through, uh, you know, I, I played, I did a lot of other things at school as well. I was in the debating society, Amnesty International, community action. I wrote for the school newspaper. So I started my writing when I was actually at school and our school newspaper called, it was called, it's called the, uh, the New Mancunian. And it won the Daily Telegraph National School Newspaper of the Year Award. And I had an article in that edition. So I was very proud of doing all that stuff. And I was also, I played in the cricket team and badminton team. And I actually had to decide at one stage, even on that, um, to uh, decide between taking up a career in medicine or cricket. I played quite a high level. And I, to be honest, I think if I was as talented as someone like as Sachin Tendulkar, who was a, somebody I looked up to as a cricketer, or a Shane Warne, then um, I would have probably gone down the cricket route. But I had to work hard at it. So I think, yeah, I decided to do cardiology. Um, and the reason, again, that's important in terms of who is this person that you're speaking to? I think I also learned early on the importance of being a team player yeah. and also captain teams in different roles as well. So, you know, you, you learn those kind of skills as you, as you're growing up. Uh, I went to, I chose, you know, my, one of my dreams actually was to go to Edinburgh medical school. Edinburgh is one of the oldest medical schools in the world. Um, you know, had a very, very good reputation, traditional course. And, uh, I was delighted when I got into Edinburgh. And, um, and when I went to Edinburgh, I mean, I think by that stage already had decided that I had a special interest in cardio in cardiology, but realized that, you know, cardiology is one of the most competitive specialities in all of medicine. So you have to make sure you pass your postgraduate examinations first time, which are very competitive. Something called the MRCP, which is the first exam you have to do. Um, you, it's a competitive exam. So only the top 30% pass. So literally 70% are going to fail before you even go into it. And if you don't pass these sorts of exams first time, it reduces, not completely, but it reduces your chances of being chosen to go into the specialty of cardiology. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my early life. Uh, Can I just ask, so at 11 years old, you lose your only brother. What did he, well, first of all, what was it that he died of? And then, and also how did that affect you? You know, like the, the crucial part of your life. You know, yeah, just from spring. Yeah, I love, yeah uh, I'll never forget that time. In fact, I remember pr pretty much every hour of every day leading up to his death. So um, he just got a stomach bug. It was... Um, and did this have anything to do with his condition? No, just... No, I don't think so. Well, it's a good question. I I'll come on to that in a second. I mean, the only thing with Down's kids or Down... Uh, people have Down syndrome, they do have an immune dysfunction. They, they are more prone to infections, actually, generally. So he got a tummy bug... And this was, um, I remember actually, yeah, he was sick. It was, Saturday, it was Saturday, October the 22nd, 1988. And he just started being sick. And it was actually his birthday on the 22nd. My birthday was the 24th. We used to celebrate our birthdays together. And there was a party planned that my parents always used to have at the house for the following Friday, which was the, uh, it would have been the 20, 28th. Yeah, 28th. And um, so he got on well. And then I remember over a few days, he became more and more sick in the sense that Tommy Buggy got over, but he became kind of, he started becoming pale, he was becoming breathless. My parents didn't know what was happening, called the paediatrician. And even though they're doctors. Even though they're doctors. Yes. He called the paediatrician. Yeah. The paediatrician came over mm. and listened to him and said, it's fine, nothing wrong with him. You know, his chest is clear, it's just a bug, don't worry about it. And then very, very quick, and I was with him actually in the house. My parents were out at one stage and I was with him in the house. I think it was during... It was during half term, so I wasn't going to school. And I remember calling my mum 
because I noticed he was even struggling to walk up the stairs and that kind of stuff. And he was going, he was going blue. My mum came and then we got admitted to hospital towards the end of that week. Um, and uh, the first thing that happened was my mum was with him in the local hospital. Um, and I remember um, my dad, my dad stayed at home with me and I remember going to sleep and we, we shared a room together, me and my brother. So uh, I went to sleep in the middle of the night, knowing my mum was with my brother in hospital. And my dad was at home, right? And I wake up, I don't know what happened. I wake up in the middle of the night and, and I, I don't know why I had this sense of something wrong. So I go to my dad's room. So I'm 11 years old and my dad's not there. And I'm alone in the house and I'm obviously like, and I don't know why it just clicked to me. I knew what ward he was on in the hospital. So I don't know. I call the hospital, I called the ward and, I, and my dad came and he said, oh, don't worry, I see him, I'm coming home. So he came home and he said that you're transferring your brother to Pendlebury Hospital, which is a specialist children's hospital. So anyway, he didn't want me to stay in my room on my own. So I stayed with him in, in my mum and dad's room while I was there. And I just, I never forget this. I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I thought my dad had had a nightmare and he was crying. I've never seen my dad cry. He was crying and he was saying, uh, Amit's gone, Amit's gone. I said, what are you talking about? So, um, he said, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and then he called one of his, uh, one of our family friends, who's a doctor. It was like the middle of like, like two or three in the morning and we drove to Pendlebury and we got there and he'd already, he'd already passed and my mum was by the bedside. It was awful. It was awful. And what had happened was basically, um, Nicola, he had developed my viral myocarditis. So in about it, the figures vary, but maybe one in 10,000 people who get in this, a normal virus can happen to anybody. Um, you have an autoimmune reaction that affects your heart. And uh, in, there's a rule of thirds with viral myocarditis. A third of people will go into heart failure and the heart will stop working properly and they will die. A third of them will have an acute problem that makes them unwell and they will be left with some permanent damage to the heart muscle but then will live, you know, probably with a reduced life expectancy. And then a third will have an acute problem that makes them unwell but doesn't cause damage to the heart muscle in any particular way and they get better and they have a normal lifespan and my brother clearly was in the third or in the worst category so that probably is what happened and of course yeah those sorts of you, you never forget that that's of age it's a very very profound impact i remember i didn't i think i only saw my parents smile once in two years after that and that was it was around the time that we were doing entrance so i had to do entrance exams for secondary school the master grammar was very competitive i think they were really worried like it was october the entrance exams in january and then you know is this even going to get through it but i i don't know i was for whatever reason I was able to get through and my dad was over the moon when I passed and um but I didn't see them smile for, for a couple of years and um yeah yeah it's 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 an awful experience to go through but do you think that was there was part of that then one you know you saw the impact of you know the heart do you think that that then there's a seed planted in you in you for you to go on to a cardiologist I think so yeah absolutely it definitely had some role to play I was interested in biology and science anyway at school um there was obviously the medical background now people may think hold on indian british indian background indian parents doctors you know oh yeah you know actually my parents were were super cool they were not they did not pressure me into medicine they wanted me to do well in my studies and you know it was one of those situations where i remember even growing up as a kid and this is typical with indian parents like the first thing my dad would say to me every day when i came home from school before you said, hello, how are you? Is any marks, as in, did you have any tests today? And what did you get? That was it, every day. So he was- It's a program, do you? Yeah. A bit of program, that was fine. But I, I, I took it in my stride. Well, I didn't feel overly pressured. Uh, and luckily I was fortunate enough to get top grades or whatever. Um, but uh, no, there wasn't that pressure. 
in that sense. But interestingly, I also had a special interest in law for a long time. And in fact, I decided kind of last minute, I was going down the law side. I was a little bit, I mean, maybe naively taken in by, you know, these programs like LA Law. I had a very strong sense of justice. Yeah. And I, I, but I remember people telling me and like family members and extended family members who were always saying, Asim, it's not about justice, it's about winning. And I don't know, I just kind of last minute turned and said, okay, I'm gonna go down the medicine route. But having said that, what's interesting about that is that the same kind of mindset one uses in making diagnosis, Nicola, is quite similar in many ways to how, say, a legal mind would work. And even, you know, uh, one of the interesting things I was telling you yesterday, uh, one of the interesting anecdotes or stories about Edinburgh is that um, one of Edinburgh's most famous alumni, other than people like Charles Darwin, who was behind, you know, the theory of evolution, uh, is Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. Arthur Conan Doyle was a medical doctor and he modeled the character of Sherlock Holmes on one of his professors of medicine at Edinburgh, who he said was the most amazing diagnostician. So he'd, give, he'd tell these stories about, he would sit in the consultation room as a medical student with this professor of medicine. And when the patients walked in, before they've even opened their mouth, he's already figured out what route they've taken to the hospital looking at their shoes and what kind of work they did, look at their hands, that kind of stuff. So we're taught in medicine, actually, and this is really important, that you have to use all the information you can to try and make a likely diagnosis. And, you know, Sherlock Holmes' byline was, when he was solving his mysteries or his murder mysteries, was, and I actually think about that, I teach my medic medical students this when I, when I give lectures, um, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. So if somebody comes to me, for example, and, and, and we also taught in medical school that 80%, if you're a good doctor and you know your stuff, 80% of your diagnosis, Nicola, comes from the history, from the discussion. So if you, if you ask your patient the right questions and you have a good knowledge base of all the different possibilities that could be causing the problem, you will, 80% of the time, you'll always have the, already have the answer. And then the, and the rule of thumb is then 5% of your diagnosis will come from the examination, 5% from simple tests, 5% from more expensive tests and 5% you will not get a diagnosis and the problem will just go away on its own, which is about one in 20 cases. So a lot, you know, time is also a good diagnostic tool because people come with all, especially if they're stressed, they come with all sorts of symptoms. You can't fully explain it. You, you, you reassure them and say, listen, there's nothing I can find that's obvious and things just get better. So um, I think that's really important. That's, you know, I think the fundamentals and that concerns me as well where medicine is going is that we've forgotten about those basics as well. And certainly with, we'll come on to it later, certainly with my journey and investigation into what is making people sicker and why are we not having the our populations with the optimal mental and physical health you know the root cause analysis of that has come from you know i've been driven by having that kind of nature in me already you know being a critical thinker asking questions going deeper um because i want to be the best possible doctor i can be yeah so you're at Edinburgh University. Yeah. What's that like? Loved it. Um, actually, I'll be honest. Yeah. I wasn't the best medical student. I literally, uh, I literally probably scraped through my exams, really? partly because I was doing other stuff. Um, okay. I, uh, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I actually became much more absorbed in medicine 
to a level where I became obsessed with it in terms of diagnostics and, and keeping up to with research and evolving research only after I graduated. That's when my passion really started. And maybe that was because I was then managing and seeing patients and there was a bit more... In it, yeah. yes. Like it's the hands-on yeah. approach. Yeah. yeah, but I love medical school. I mean, I enjoyed Edinburgh. I learned a lot there. Um, it was hard. It was hard work. Um, I, played in, I played in a rock band. So, you know, my, my flatmate who... I met at the end of my first year, and then we moved in together. His name's Arjun. He's a he's a radiologist now um, in in London. He was actually much smarter than me at medical school. He used to yeah he used to do really well. Although I you know he was a guy that was working late at night. While I was, I, I would never work late. So I was I'm a morning person. After five p.m. you know do something fun, go to the gym, go out with mates, go to the pub, go to the cinema, whatever. Uh, but he was he had an amazing voice, and uh, just by chance I'd learned to play guitar when I was sixteen. And uh, we started, you know, with friends, as it is, you go to someone's house, I pick up the guitar, start playing, he starts singing, he's like, okay, we should form a band. So we actually formed a kind of band and did a lot of covers and, yeah, which is great, you know, yeah. all, all around Edinburgh. And it was mainly kind of stuff, you know, I was, um, my, my soul music is rock music. Yeah. So I, I was kind of a 90s teenager into, you know, Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, you know, that, that was, that's my soul music. So a lot of the stuff, and we've covered stuff like the Beatles and U2 and Oasis and that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, it was good fun. And there was no part of you that thought, do you know what? Sack off this medicine. I'm going to be a rock star. Um, I don't think my, uh, yeah, uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, it's, it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you finished medical school. Then what happens after that? What's your journey leading up to, you know, over the, the, your 20s and 30s? Yeah, um, so I, I decided quite early on I wanted to pursue a career in cardiology. What happens is... Um, you, you often get placed. So when we, when I qualified in 2001, um, you do your first year for every doctor is you do six months in medicine, in general medicine and six months in general surgery to get a bit of breadth. And then you start to get a bit more, you decide whether you're going to go down the medical route, the surgical route, general practitioner route. And then your jobs are then, um, catered to making sure that you get enough experience to then do your postgraduate examinations and then specialize. So I, I did my first, I spent my first year and a half in Edinburgh, as in in Scotland. My first six months were in a place called Wisher General Hospital, which is um, on the outskirts of Glasgow and quite a deprived area. In many ways, it, it hardened me up because I saw some of the sickest patients I would have seen in my life at a very early stage in my career when we didn't have that much support. So you have to you sink or swim, really. Yeah. So you learn to become, to manage, you know, people who are, um, who are very unwell and, uh, in some ways, it made me, you know, a better doctor. Yeah. So, so I was a wish of six months and I, I was in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. I did vascular surgery and then care of the elderly. And then I went, uh, I got what we call a, um, well, I did A&E then. Actually, that was interesting. In Manchester Royal Infirmary. Came back to Manchester for a while. And that was the busiest A&E in the country. And that was hardcore and it was, it was great. But it was stuff like, you know, that time there was a lot of problems in a place in Great Manchester called Moss Side where they were shooting. So we'd see, often on a Friday or Saturday night, we'd walk, I'd walk in on the shift. I'd hear something on the news about, I'm driving in from my night shift and on the news on the radio, it's like, man shot six times wherever. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And then I get in and the nurse comes, I see, can you come here and give this patient morphine? And I was like, who is it? It's just been shot. Six. Oh, I heard about that on the radio. And it was like armed guards sometimes outside the recess because it was... It was pretty, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was exciting as well. Yeah, it really uh, yeah, it is exciting. Even listening to it, it's exciting. Yeah. It's like, 
because it's that is happening every single day even now as we speak and that the energy and the excitement around it as much as it's awful for the people that are going through it for the doctors and the nurses that's life that's what keeps you going that's yeah, what I mean, it, it, when you're doing your 12 hour, yeah when you're doing your 12 hour shifts you know, you've got to have that adrenaline kick to keep you going. Yeah, and in those days as well, they don't. it's not allowed now, because which is good, something called the European Working Time Directive. You know, when I started uh, off working, we were doing, um, you know, I was doing 90-hour weeks, proper, hardcore. Wow. Uh, and even when I started as a cardiology trainee, I remember every so often I'd do a 56-hour shift. So, you know, I got, I got a lot of intense experience, uh, Nico, to get me where I am now in terms of clinical experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I worked towards getting, you know, jobs in cardiology. I worked in the north of England for a while. And then I transferred my what we call training number to London, partly because, so I, you know, I'm, I was married and divorced. And my, uh, my then wife, she could only work in London. So I did everything to help. She was a management consultant to get to be where she could be. And then, you know, shifted my, and then we separated. And I basically stayed in London, really. Um, and I was there since 2008 and I, I, I was lucky to work in my first cardiology job in London was actually in Harefield Hospital, which is considered like one of the top cardiac hospitals in Europe. And I was then at that stage training and specializing in something called interventional cardiology. So that for layman terms is keyhole heart surgery involves unlocking people's arteries when they have heart attacks and sometimes when they don't have heart attacks. And uh, it had the fastest treatment times in the country. It was something like what we call a daughter balloon time of 20 minutes. That means when a patient's brought in with a wow. heart attack, from when they, they actually audit this stuff for quality, you know, um, uh, as a marker of quality of good care, uh, or good quality care, is that when you come through the door until you've actually unblocked the artery, it's timed. And it was 20 minutes. I actually, and some of it, a lot of it's luck and a lot of it's a team. I remember one of the cases I did through the wrist and I was the registrar. Um, our da my daughter balloon time, it was one off, but it was very fast. It was 11 minutes. So I, I really enjoyed it and I was, I was good at it and I was getting good feedback that I was, I was good at it. And that's really where I wanted to pursue my ultimate career. Um, and then things changed, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And so tell me, how did things change? What was it that then opened your mind to seeing things different from what you were taught at medical school? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it was a gradual process. I mean, on that note, in terms of medical school, and this is also important to mention to combat this socio-cultural phenomenon that medicine is an exact science when it's not, it's an applied science, is that 50% of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong within five years of your graduation. The trouble is nobody can tell you which half, so you have to learn to learn on your own. So for me, what I was experiencing viscerally and observing as a doctor managing over my 20-year career, tens of thousands of patients, is I was seeing more and more people coming in with more pills, more chronic disease. Not really, we weren't really improving them, obviously, yeah. in terms of our outcomes. And of course, attached to that was the whole issue of the obesity epidemic, which is a massive problem. 2004 World Health Organization said it's a global issue. So I was trying to understand what was going on here and why was heart disease still the number one cause of premature death in European men or one of the biggest killers in the world, despite all of the so-called evidence around lowering cholesterol as a way forward. We've got all these drugs that lower cholesterol. Like what's going on here? So I started really to start looking a bit further and deeper down into those factors that were driving it. I also as well, I think some of this is personal as well, um, Nicola, I've always, always been someone that has had a, 
And I got this again from my dad, who's valued the importance of lifestyle and good health. Yeah. You know, my dad was a very active sportsman. I mean, in fact, he got into medical school with a sports scholarship. He, you know, he played cricket at a very high level. So I think there was an element of a personal interest in that. Also, I was a foodie. I learned to cook when I was 16. Okay. And I was looking at the food environment and thinking in the hospitals and it's just rubbish. You know, I used to cook every day. That's one of my other sort of passions. I love cooking. So um, I started to investigate it. And when I started looking at the research on which a lot of our clinical decision making was based, it didn't look very reliable. And the information we were given about the benefits of drugs or heart stents, or we were conditioned to think as doctors, was grossly exaggerated in terms of their benefits. So as I got deeper and deeper, I thought, bloody hell, this, this is... It's a massive, but it's not a small issue. It's, it's a major issue. And understanding, I mean, fast forwarding a little bit, understanding that the, the two big drivers of misinformation are these big powerful industries, which are the food industry and pharma. On the food stuff is where I started initially was um, I think what got me into the mainstream and got me into the public eye is it was the summer of, so I actually, this is interesting. So this is just after my separation in 2010 and going through all of that kind of trauma that one goes through, you know, when you go through a divorce or whatever else, um, getting very absorbed in my work as well. And I remember um, I, uh, one summer in 2010, I remember writing an email to Jamie Oliver or getting hold of his PA's email address because I was just shocked by the way that our hospitals were saturated with junk food. And one anecdote, which, is, which I wrote about, which is well known, is I remember treating a guy for a heart attack in the middle of the night, emergency stenting. Next day on the ward round, I'm talking to him about, these are the pills you need to take religiously, you need to stop smoking, and you need to follow a healthy diet. And just as I'm talking to him about the healthy diet, the hospital serves him a burger and chips. And he says to me, Doc, how do you expect me to change my lifestyle if you're serving me the same crap that brought me here in the first place? And I thought, you know what, you're right. You're right. So um, I then, contacted Jamie Oliver because I was actually quite inspired with what he tried to do to improve school dinners yeah. and I said listen there's a big issue with why, why don't we do a hostile food campaign or why don't, you get, why don't you get involved in that and then to my pleasant surprise six weeks later I get a reply saying Jamie thank you Dr Malhotra Jamie would be thrilled to meet you come and have a meeting with him and other doctors then I went to meet Jamie at the end of 2000 and I think it was end of 2000 and um end of 2010 and uh and I remember then you know it was great you know, he, what you see, he's, he is that guy. He's a really lovely, sincere guy, really cares. Uh, it was a little bit surreal at the time. There were other doctors and we talked about what do we do about this obesity problem? And I said to him, what hospital food, can you get involved in a campaign or whatever else? And he was really friendly and he said to him, I would love to, but because he's got so many other projects going on right now, he couldn't. But he said, what I can do is I can support you or give you a supportive quote if you're going to write about it. I said, brilliant. And I'd actually, um, I'd written a couple of articles as a junior doctor for The Guardian before and I'd, I'd befriended um, a chap called Dennis Campbell, who's actually the health policy, policy editor now. And I talked to Dennis about it. He said, it seemed this would be a great campaign. You know, maybe the Guardian should get behind this hospital food campaign. And I think he wasn't, we weren't able to do that. But ultimately, I ended up writing an article. I submitted it to the, he said, submitted to the Observer newspaper, which is a Sunday version of the Guardian, although it's a bit different. And a couple of months later, to my pleasance, you know, it was, I was a bit surprised. It took a while and I was surprised. They put it as a front page commentary. And the title was, um, they usually choose the titles. I didn't choose the title, right? You know how it is. But it was, I mend hearts. Then I see our hospitals serve junk food to my patients, right? Now, good in many ways, has impact. Other things started happening. I ended up doing, because of that, I think about a year, uh, a year and a half later, 
in the middle of the Olympic Games, I do a report for BBC Newsnight on junk food sponsorship Olympics. People look that up because it was a really good kind of 10 minute slot as the angry cardiologist saying in the middle of the Olympic Games, why are our main sponsors during the BC epidemic, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Heineken and Cadbury's. So it was a really strong report and I had political interviewed, you know, uh, the public health, um, shadow public health minister at the time, I think it was Diane Abbott. So there's a lot of stuff that came up at the back of that. But this is where the, the backlash started to happen slowly. So I remember in the hospital I was working at the time, I don't want to name it, but I remember the hospital I was working at the time, there's a little bit of kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm still the specialist registrar, I'm not a consultant yet. And you get publicity like that. I'm there purely for the purpose of the, of the greater good, not to enhance myself. Unfortunately, that's a lot of people, even medicine, unfortunately, people do that. And we get, you do get some, how should I put it? Um, I wouldn't, I would say not the ideal characters in medicine and some of that unfortunately some of that is in cardiology too and there was a bit of a kind of like in the hospital uh you know and then why why are you interested in prevention you're going to ruin the business i mean it was kind of tongue-in-cheek but there was an element of why are you why are you going down this prevention route you know you you need to focus on just doing stents like well i'd rather those patients didn't come in in the first place we're always going to need patients that are going to need acute care but rather than having heart attacks at 70, fine, we shift the curve so they have heart attacks at 80 or 90. Yeah. But we've made people, people's health span better, right? So that was my thinking. They didn't see it that way. And I think subtly things started to change for me a little bit at that point. Um, so I started writing these articles. I wrote another article for The Observer. And then the BMJ asked me to start writing for them. And at that stage, Nicola, that was when I started becoming much more aware of the issue of sugar being a problem. I did my own investigation on that and found out through, through that investigation that the sugar guidelines in Europe were advising people to consume, if you've if you gone to any supermarket, actually telling people they should consume 22 and a half teaspoons of sugar a day. When the science was out of keeping with it, so as a cardiologist, it was already telling us actually the limit should be no more than six teaspoons. So I was like, what happened here? So I wrote this in the BMJ, they press released it. Sugar industry came after me there. And so there's all sorts of stuff started happening um, yeah, and that, and that's well, that's where we are at that stage. And I kind of just then became a big campaigner on the sugar how stuff. How old are you around this at this point? So this was um, the BMJ stuff that really started the me getting a, becoming a controversial figure, um, and then the backlash that came with it was 2013. So 10 years ago. So I was I'm 45 now, 35. Yeah. And how did that feel? Because obviously you're a doctor, you're you know there to fix patients, but you've You've got, it's almost like you raised your head above the parapet and you're getting attacked. How does that feel as a doctor? Like, does it make you want to keep going with your crusade? Or, do you, you know, at the points when you're at home thinking, oh, God, what am I doing? I never, it never put me off. Yeah. There were stressful moments when there's pushback momentarily. But actually, I was so driven by an obsession with the truth and getting it out there. And I'm always, always listen, the other thing is, you know, a good scientist, when they make errors, will correct those errors, yeah. right? But I was always open to, okay, have, the thing is, oh God, have I made a major boo-boo here? I've done some, because these were peer-reviewed papers, but of course things can be mistaken. So there was always that, I was always very conscious of anything that came back to me. I was like, okay, let me just reassess this. Is, could I have done this better? Is there anything else? So I tried to look at it as a learning curve, but actually there was nothing really major. There was these small things here and there. A lot of the pushback was coming because... I was calling out, you know, very powerful industries that were profiting from essentially lying to people. And these industries have a lot of money and a lot of resources and scientists behind them. But I just had this 
um, I had this faith that the truth will win ultimately. And I just got to keep going and got to take those hits. And, and then there was a learning curve. And certainly I think it culminated, the, the biggest thing that happened to me was 2013 October. Um, the most controversial, high profile piece I'd written up to that point was called Saturated Fat is Not the Major Issue. I mentioned it a bit to Joe Rogan. And uh, I'd basically, by that stage, I'd spent a few years getting to this point where I'd realized that our obsession with lowering cholesterol, and that was relevant to the cardiology community over several decades, had actually paradoxically caused the obesity epidemic, increased heart disease risks, type 2 diabetes, because cholesterol's role in heart disease had been grossly, grossly, grossly exaggerated. The fear around it, again, and the industries that had developed around it, which are trillion dollar industries, if you like, and I basically called it out. I literally called it out. It's like the emperor has no clothes. Can you imagine? As in, and it's not just writing it like a blog. So what happens is the BMJ felt it was really important to, well, it was obviously peer reviewed. It was 800 words as a commentary, but they press released it. And when the, a, a journal like the BMJ, which is one of the highest impact medical journals in the world, press releases something, the likelihood is it's going to hit the news. Now, whether it's one article somewhere on page five or whether it's a bit more prominent, you don't know until it, until it actually, until the journalists at the time decide whether the, the timing of it, what else is the news, whatever else. And it became the front page of three British newspapers. Um, I was on CNN International. I was thrown into the deep end straight away. Um, Fox News, Chicago. It was, it was mentioned in other countries around the world. Essentially, cardiologist says butter isn't going to kill you. Yeah. Butter isn't bad for the heart. That's essentially the upshot of it. Yeah. Because by that yeah. stage, the indoctrination was so deep. Yeah. Everybody believed yeah. that eating fat or saturated fat is going to clog your arteries. Yeah. yeah, because we were eating margarine, which is made of full of chemicals and tastes disgusting, thinking I'm being so much healthier than as if I was eating, you know, grass-fed butter. Yeah. So, so I, at that stage, I literally committed medical, I committed heresy. Okay. So, so, and it wasn't just that, it was in the article, I'd actually picked a few fights in the sense, not deliberately, but I've called out the overprescription of statins, which is a, yeah. one of the most prescribed drugs in history of medicine, um, because of this cholesterol hypothesis. I'd called out the nutrition scientists who's saying that saturated fat is a, is a big problem. And, uh, and, and that really was taking on, you know, uh, the food industry and, and big pharma simultaneously. So the backlash was huge. Yeah. Um, but I dealt with it. And were you still working with the NHS at this point? I was actually. I was actually now um, in, uh, having a fellowship in a hospital called Croydon University Hospital where I was the main person who was being trained to do the final stages of becoming an interventional cardiologist and whatever else. And I completed my training yeah. actually by that stage. But I was just doing, you know, a bit more, all the, all of the stent procedures, whatever else. Most of them, they would prioritize that I would get it. And it was actually during that that um, I remember... Um, not long after that, I mean, I got called up by the medical director after that piece was written. Do you know your duties as a doctor? Be speaking to GMC about you. And I think someone had called him because I'd done nothing wrong. Yeah. And I basically got a veiled threat from one of the cardiologists, the lead cardiologist in that department, who basically said to me, you can't, I think there's something on the lines of talking about statins being overprescribed or whatever else. If, if, if you say that again, then we might have to cut your fellowship short. And, um, for me, it was all about ethics and evidence-based medicine and giving people the truth and, and breaking down the information that they can understand about the benefits of drugs, which a lot of people aren't aware of, are very marginal most of the time. Um, and I can't remember, something happened, and then the next thing is I get a letter. They didn't, it didn't, it wasn't mentioned in the letter. 
because I think, I don't know, that maybe they didn't want to make themselves open to, you know, it was a conversation and then a letter saying, we've decided to cut your fellowship short. So I had a year job and suddenly I've got a two months notice and I've got no job. Now, interestingly, I'm not trying to paint a bad picture of the whole of medicine at all, not at all. In fact, there are many brilliant, brilliant people who have inspired me and people that have supported me. Because of my Jamie Oliver stuff, I had got asked to be part of something called the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges Obesity Steering Group. So the Medical Royal Colleges are the umbrella organization that represent every specialist, um, specialist uh, speciality in the UK, whether you're obstetrics or whether it's surgery, whether it's Royal College of Physicians, all that kind of stuff. And the chair of it was, uh, at the time, was a chap called Professor Terence Stevenson. And he'd been, and we'd become, you know, uh, we'd become friends. He'd, he'd, he was impressed with what I was writing, I think. He saw me as someone, as a junior doctor. We need someone like Asim that can be a good advocate and, and be an ambassador, actually, for the medical royal colleges on obesity. Um, and I'd spent time with them and we'd looked at evidence, like, trying to understand what was driving the obesity epidemic and most of it was environmental stuff, right? The food environment and all that kind of thing. So I'd been doing work with them already. And, uh, and we had already, I think by that stage, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was early on that year, 2013, um, published a report which made, you know, front page of the Guardian BBC News headlines saying that we should have a sugary drinks tax. Hospitals to stop serving junk food, you know, selling junk food. There was lots of different recommendations we had. And he'd actually invited me and said, it seemed actually, you know, you're really heavily involved in a lot of stuff that's important for health policy around understanding over-medicated society, tackling obesity. Why don't you come and work with us for a year and be an, a consultant to the medical royal colleges? And actually, that was a great opportunity for me to churn out a lot more medical journal publications that are really important for how to improve the system, how to improve the NHS. So he'd invited me to be on that, on that. And that was around the time that I was, had been given notice um, at uh, Croydon that I, I had no job but I didn't want to stop seeing patients so I, I although that job finished I had a three day three days a week with the medical ecologist doing stuff with them and it gave me a, a very basic salary so it was okay um, but then I uh, another cardiologist I got in touch with said why didn't you come and work with us do a day a, day a week with us as a consultant the problem is we don't have the money to pay you um, but you can work and see patients and do clinics and I just, I didn't want to stop seeing patients. So I worked for free. In fact, I actually paid to work there because I had to pay for my own transport. And it was called Frimley Park Hospital. And I worked there for a year. My job with the medical royal college is finished and now I've got no income. And I, and I thought I can't, I would have loved to have carried on, but there was no income coming in at all. And then I went to a job, um, and this is actually quite relevant to where we're going. Um, I got offered a job at a place called Lister Hospital in Stevenage. There's a lovely and brilliant cardiologist called Diana Gorog. She's a professor of cardiology. And she'd known of me when I worked at Harefield as a registrar. And she'd come and do, she, she'd come and do visiting what we call cardiac lists over there, stents. And I would, you know, you know, I knew her. And I reached out to her and she said, no, we'd love to come and ha you come and work with us. And you can do, you know, four sessions a week and do some clinics here and that kind of stuff. So I was there for three years, actually, um, until 2000 and. 18. The statin saga had continued, yeah. controversies back and forths, which people can look up. Lots of stuff going on there. You know, uh, I was on trial for two months where there was call for retraction from one of those powerful men in medicine in the country who's got very strong financial links to his institution with drug companies, you can imagine. 
um, making said that I'd made claims about statin for side effects that were exaggerated and people would be harmed and I had to go through all of that. But we came through, no retraction, minor correction, carry on. And I'd carried on writing and, and publishing in journals and even got to the stage where um, I coordinated a campaign with the BMJ and the Medical Royal Colleges and I wrote a piece in 2015 um, saying that, that too much medicine is such a big problem, Nicola, um, third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer, prescribed medications, that we need, an, we need a campaign which gets the medical profession joining with the BMJ who had campaigned on this issue to come together and to do something about it and give lots of recommendations. So I've done all of that stuff as well, carried on with that. But what, just moving forward before we get to COVID, what happened in 2018 is um, I'd on, carried on advocating for ethical evidence-based medical practice. Not that don't take statins, but most people don't need them. If they're told the truth about them in terms of absolute benefits, they choose not to take them. And that's all I did. What happened really in the spring of 2019 is the Mail on Sunday did what can only be described as, I think, a hatchet job on myself and two other... Um, public health advocates, one's called Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is a GP and the other one is a, a nutritionist called Zoe Harkham. And uh, essentially the, um, you know, the, the, the editorial written by their health editor was essentially saying that a place belongs in hell for people who say statins don't work. And there was a picture of me and somebody else, which I never said statins don't work. I said the benefits are minimal. I just break it down in terms of ethical evidence-based medical practice. So you just kind of, you're a victim of these sorts of smears. And what was interesting was that they uh, even used Matt Hancock, the Secretary for Health, to say that essentially there is no place for people like this in our NHS. I knew Matt. I'd met him, actually, and spoken in Parliament a week earlier. In fact, later on, he'd, he'd taken my diet book and lost a couple of stones on it. So I said to Matt, I messaged him and I said, Matt, what's going on here? He said, I'm, I'm so sorry, I had no idea they were referring to you. So the Mail on Sunday used Matt Hancock probably didn't say who they were going to do a hatchet job on. And then anyway, so it just tells you how the media works. Yeah. But I see what happened after that, though, um, Nicola, is that I then lost my job, as in I was told, I was working in Lister Hospital of Stevenage for three years, and I got a message by text um, not long after that, basically saying that your services are no longer required. And... I think probably, you know, they'd named the hospital where I was working, that kind of stuff. Somebody maybe taken a bit of heat and maybe said, shut him up or get him out. And uh, that's unfortunate. Um, and I know that certainly the cardiologist there, Professor Gorog, who originally employed me and wanted me to work there, she was horrified by it all. And uh, there was a little bit of a, you know, I think she did whatever she could to try and keep me on. But, you know, powers that be, it didn't happen. Um, and then after that, of course, we went into the, you know, the situation of the... Um, you know, I was also writing my third book called Staten Free Life, so I got focused on that. I carried on doing some private work, so I was still seeing patients. Mm -hmm. But of course, my passion is the NHS. Yeah. Like, everything I have done in my life, in my advocacy and campaigning, has been always with the NHS in mind. How do we save the NHS from going under? How do we stop? How do we make sure that patients get the best quality care? And um, unfortunately, the NHS is only NHS by logo now, because it's been corrupted by commercial influence externally and internally and the culture is not a culture of what Anya in Bevan the Labour MP who was the kind of the brainchild of the NHS who is it, it's fallen far short of what he his ideals which was not about giving people the free free health care which I think is great it's giving people the, giving them the best free health care universalizing the best we have to we have to remember that so that has been a bit of a, of a challenge and getting back in and of course there are many you know friends of mine and colleagues who appreciate my work who are cardiologists but the way it works is uh, I could say probably at least eight departments 
in cardiology in London where people have been advocating for me. Cardiologists have gone to say to their colleagues, you know, we want to seem to come and work here. And, um, you know, let's just say there are eight cardiologists in the department and just one of them objects. They don't rock the boat. And, uh, and then therefore, sorry, Asim, we can't help you. But I think the most extraordinary thing that happened to me was I had a chat a few months ago with someone who I won't name, um, who's one of the most senior, powerful cardiologists in the country. And uh, because somebody else had, had, asked, had asked him to speak to me and he was, you know, he was upset with what had happened because he knows that I'm all about ethical evidence-based medical practice. And I have, I have, I write in medical journals about solutions to sorting the NHS crisis out. Um, and he basically, you know, he gave me a call. We had, we had a conversation and he basically said, listen, I, I know your work's very good. I think you're very sensible. Um, he knows that my, you know, my clinical care record is impeccable. Um, I'm quite lucky, maybe. I've never had a single patient complaint in my whole career, which is very unusual. And I think that's partly because I understand the importance of just communicating with patients in an empathetic way. And, um, and he said to me, Asim, I will, do, I will be able to help you get a job back in the NHS on one condition. I said, what's that? you basically have to stop all of your advocacy work and stop speaking out. Shut up and get back in, basically. Basically, yeah. But I, I couldn't do that. I thanked him for the conversation, but I'm, I'm sorry, that isn't what I'm going to do. So that's where I'm at. And uh, that doesn't still mean I want to not want to you know, do my best to save the NHS because um, I think it's such it's, it's one of the envies of the world. It's like a religion in, in, in Britain. I mean, it's considered the single most important issue for most people. And it's now failing because we haven't tackled the prevention side. We haven't tackled the chronic disease driven by poor diet. Um, we haven't tackled the over-medication. In fact, even it's estimated one in five of all hospital missions in the, el hospital missions in the elderly, over 65, is because of dangerous drug interactions. A lot of this stuff is avoidable just by actually better information given to people. So, um, you know, that's, yeah, that's going to continue to be my focus as, as I move forward. Yeah. Even though you're not part of it, you're still, it's still a massive passion for you. You know, I, I, it, it's, it's, I'm very passionate and proud of, of the principles and the values of what the NHS has been and should be. And my father as well, you know, he was considered by many as the single most prolific campaigner for the NHS as a doctor in the last few decades. I mean, he got the Labour Party National Doctor of the Year Award. He was, you know, GP, he was Vice President of the VMA. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, but I, I was very much with him on that. It's important. So, let's talk about what everyone wants to hear you talk about. So, it's the beginning of 2020. Yeah. We are all, we, me, you know, and my family and the rest of the UK, are sat down and we're watching our television screens and we're being told the pandemic is coming. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. We need to find a solution. There's this wet market in China, a bat's been killed. It's the most outrageous thing that we've ever heard, but we believe it. And the world sits and waits to be told what to do. At that point, where are you? What's your life? What, what, what's your thoughts? What's happening in that, those moments for you? Um, I think like everybody else, I was curious to see what was actually the truth. Um, and I think one of the first things, I was one of the first people really to speak out on identifying the risks with the lifestyle and poor outcomes from COVID. Okay. But one of the things I think to some degree was reassuring for me when I looked at the data from China and Italy is that the people that were dying from COVID, from the Wuhan strain, were predominantly elderly. Yeah. 
So I still remember a figure which I wrote about, I think I wrote about in the Express newspaper, was that the average age of death um, of people in Italy from COVID during the first wave was 81. Okay. And, of the, uh, and the average number of chronic conditions associated with those people that died yeah. was 2.7, okay. almost three, right? So that meant that it was, it was a particularly devastating illness for the elderly vulnerable, but it didn't seem to be the case for younger people, which was good and reassuring to some degree. It didn't mean we didn't have to think about a good plan to help support and protect elderly people, but it gave me some perspective. I also then noticed as well that the people that were dying were people with heart disease, type 2 diabetes and the obesity link. Okay, this is my area of research. This is what I published on. I have been involved in propagating a message that lifestyle changes rapidly within weeks can massively improve your health markers and likely immune resilience. So I started talking about that, you know, I was on Sky News first, I think in March 2020, saying that, you know, this message from Boris Johnson, which was, you know, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives, when they, the lockdown plan came in, and I'm gonna come back to that in a second, should have been supplemented with eat real food. Right, that would have had a massive, absolutely, you know, and the stuff around vitamin D and vitamin C and that kind of stuff. I think we probably would have saved many, many, many lives if we had instituted public health messaging on it. And then later on, things evolved, and I and ultimately, you know, wrote a couple of medical journal articles. I, I wrote a front page commentary for the Daily Telegraph. I was on Good Morning Britain, BBC. I said that Boris Johnson likely got ill because of his weight. That became a big story. And then Matt Hancock then came back to me again and said, "Seeing what what's something between obesity and COVID? What should we be doing?" And I said, listen, Matt, you need to, the public health messaging needs to be spot on on, 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 on about eating real food, but also ultra processed food now is a new tobacco. Yeah. And that's half of the British diet in terms of calorie consumption, comes out of a packet, five or more ingredients engineered by the food industry to probably be addictive, um, hyper palatable, sugar starch, unhealthy oils, additives and preservatives. That's 50% of the calorie consumption of British diet, 60% in America. Eliminate that from your diet immediately. Right, and you're, there was no conversation. I didn't see this on the news. I, mean, I didn't I see anything. Person, yeah, yeah was there person. was no one like telling one us this news. message. We were just sat in fear, waiting for a solution. And they were saying, "Just sit at home. We're going to find it. We're going to find this injection, or you know, the something that's going to save us all." Yeah. What's your thoughts on where COVID actually came from? Great question. So now it's accepted, yeah. um, and it may not be common knowledge, but people can look this up. So we were told it came from this wet market. Yeah. Right, and it like someone was cutting a bat, and blood got in his eye, or something <laughs> ridiculous. It was man-made. Okay, it was um, man-made. It came from a lab in Wuhan that was joint Chinese-American lab, and apparently also Fauci was aware of this. And um, I don't know what what actually happened. I understand from different people that this lab was under a lot of financial stress and pressure. They were, you know, engineering, working on different viruses called gain of function, which again is a little bit odd. I'm not, I don't quite fully understand what that means and why they would be trying to uh, manipulate, you know, coronaviruses. Uh, but that appears the most likely, you know, explanation now is it came from a lab and it leaked. You know, it was accidental, it leaked, and then it just. I mean, I, I, to someone like me who ha that's not my world leaked how does that how does something like that leak what someone chucked it out of a window and it fell on the floor no, I, I think that like, the safety processes involved in terms of how they manage these viruses probably something gave you know because of, of financial so maybe one of the people working within that got the virus which they yes something like that i'm sure that's, but that's we a, just don't know we don't know for sure and eventually the truth will come out but that is a more likely explanation now and accepted yeah. than it will coming from a wet market okay yeah and because that is what we're told joint chinese american lab though 
So I think this COVID inquiry that's happening will uncover the truth and we'll, have, we'll hopefully get to a, a better understanding of that. I really that. feel like in 10 years' time, we're going to look back and this is like what, you know, the children will learn in their history books. Like, oh my God, this is what happened and this is happening. And this, oh, let's carry on. So we're all there. We're all waiting. Um, and at that time, were you, did you believe as a doctor that a vaccine is going to come along and save us all? Was that... As a doctor, is that what you Not really, to be honest. I thought it might have some effect. And it's just in addition to all the other things that were going on. I think what was reassuring, certainly by the end of 2020, early 2021, we started to understand that there was an evolution in the virus that was making it milder. In fact, I, you know, if you look at the evolution of viruses anyway, they tend to get more, uh, less, less um, deadly, less pathogenic as, you, as, as they evolve. It's not in the interest of the viruses to kill people. You see, they want to survive. You see, if you kill people off, then they 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 will die with the host. Okay. So, so that's one of the reasons why I was optimistic that things would evolve anyway, and they did. Yeah. Um, but when the vaccine came along, you know, I, I I personally, despite me doing all this work on exposing pharmaceutical industry corruption, I mean, to the level where 2018, I went to the European Parliament, mm-hmm. gave a talk, and it was front page of the I newspaper. It was covered in the Belgian, you know, press. And the talk, my title, of my talk was "Big Food and Big Pharma Killing for Profit." Right. So I was very much aware of what, what had been going on. But for me, vaccines were untouchable. They were the holy grail. Traditional vaccines are considered the safest pharmacological interventions. I said that on Good Morning Britain in February 2021 because I had two doses of vaccine myself. Because I thought, not because I thought I was a risk, because I thought I would protect my patients. There was a little bit of pressure for my dad. You know, he was, he was worried about me. And again, there was an exaggerated fear around COVID, which um, I think still exists for many people. Yeah. And uh, for that reason, I went on Good Morning Britain because they wanted me to help tackle a very specific group of people that the ethnic minority communities were the ones that were more vaccine hesitant. And they wanted me to help reassure them. And I said, listen, there are rational concerns that you've got. Think about all the fraud farmers have committed over the years. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I said, traditional vaccines are the safest. And that was really the end of the conversation. But at that stage, Nicola, we were only really giving it or offering it to people at a very high risk. Things then suddenly started changing. Lower, younger, younger people. And then there was the NHS uh, healthcare staff vaccine mandate that got introduced by Sajid Javid around a time where I had discovered that there was certainly a link between the mRNA vaccines and heart disease. And it initially started with my, my poor father, um, you know, in July 2021, um, um, he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest having, so having had some chest pain. And uh, the post-mortem findings completely just didn't make sense to me because he had severe coronary artery disease in two of the three vessels, major vessels. And I knew his heart status was actually from a few years ago was very stable and good. There wasn't anything significant. Something had caused an acceleration in, 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 in the, in, in the buildup of, of blockages in his arteries. And I got evidence that that, how that could happen from the vaccine in, I think, October, November, 2021. And then lots of other data came in that showed there was definitely a link between the, uh, the Pfizer mRNA vaccines, uh, and adverse, um, outcomes that were really pretty horrific i mean it's it's like nothing we've ever seen before it's it's truly horrible i remember seeing it all over my social media feed these poor girls convulsing and shaking and people would write you know she would be on there saying i have had the vaccine and this is what's happening to me you know very healthy beautiful girls you very usually kind of late 20s early 30s uncontrollably shaking and they're saying this is because of this and then all the comments underneath would be just like you're you know this this is wrong you're joking like it's got nothing to do with the vaccine i mean completely and utterly shut down and made to to feel and look like they are going mad when that is what you know 
they were the people that were living through that. And then I even have a friend, um, a beautiful male friend, was um, went for the vaccine. He came back from the vaccine. He was like, oh, my leg's aching. He sat on his sofa, he put his leg up, and his leg started to swell up. And he said, like, oh, what's this? Called the doctor. He's 32 years old. Called the doctor. They said, oh, uh, oh, don't worry. We'll send someone to have a look. By the time they got there, he died. Literally within like two hours of him having the first ever like vaccine. On, on his social media page, everyone's like, oh, this is so sad. It's so sad. People are saying, this is because of the, the vaccine. People look at this and people are like, how dare you say that? This is not because of the vaccine. The world is going mad. Like what? How can how do we now help people see that that was because of the vaccine? That these things are actually like these injuries are serious injuries. Not only are they injuring people, they're actually killing people like your dad. It has to be through a respectful, empathetic conversation. It's not easy because um, there's 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 a psychological the the barrier to getting to the truth or. A, allowing people to engage in critical thought is fear. That's the first one that happened early on and still present. Um, and the second was willful blindness because people have swallowed the narrative yeah. so deeply that changing one's mind is not an easy thing to do, but it's possible. And I've done it many times and I give talks and I, and I walk people through it. Well, you changed your mind. You did. You had two vaccines and then saw what happened and but, then you changed but, your mind. But new information became available. Now, we could have had that information at the beginning okay. if we didn't have these unethical, unscientific, unjust and undemocratic laws. Okay. Which basically means that the regulators that we trust yeah. to do their job properly are not doing their job properly because they're being funded by pharma okay. and therefore there's a bias. And what happens in a trial, this is important for people to understand. So, and this has been historical and people have campaigned on trying to sort this out for years. But now I think this is an opportunity because the, out, the outcomes, the adverse effects on society from not sorting this problem out are so unbelievably catastrophic and horrific that if it doesn't happen now, it's only going to carry on getting worse and there will be no solutions and we're going down a very, 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 down a very, very dark path. And that is this. When drug industry conduct trials, they do their own analyses. They design the trials, methods, analyses, the results, a clinical trial, for example, the Pfizer vaccine that had 40,000 participants, almost 40,000, looking at people took the vaccine versus the, the dummy. And it was reanalyzed by independent researchers. And they found that from the beginning, you were more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the vaccine than you were to be hospitalized with COVID. Right. So it's a no brainer. It probably should never have been given to a single human. Now, we could have been in that position at the very beginning if independent researchers had analyzed, been able to analyze the data early on. But the problem is they have tens of thousands of pages that, um, uh, that, are, that are data from these clinical trials. And then what happens is that the drug companies will summarize the results mm -hmm. and just to save time, give the summary results to the regulator okay. to get them to fast track it, who they then pay to do that job. Yeah. And also a lot of these people who are um, in the senior positions of say the regulatory positions, the FDA or the MHRA, when they move, when they leave those positions, those government positions, they end up getting very lucrative jobs with the drug industry. So it's in their interest to keep them happy. But the problem is, the, the downside is, of course, that these drug companies, if harms are, occur, they will suppress it, they will cover it up, they want to make money. They often are described in the, in the, as a legal entity in the way that they make money as being psychopathic. And that's from a forensic psychologist, Dr. Robert Hare. So ca a callous disregard for the feelings of others incapacity to experience guilt, deceitfulness, uh, conning, uh, lying for the purposes of profit. That's what they do. 
This is what they've done consistently. People need to understand that this is how these multinational corporations operate. They are psychopathic. Yeah. You know, this is not inflammatory. This is, this is evidence-based opinion. And once people understand that and they realize that, that that's where the control is happening over many aspects of our lives, even if we don't know it, you can help to understand the root cause of the problem, why society is going in the wrong direction. So we need to just change the law. Regulators should not take money from industry. Drug industries can develop products and drugs, but they shouldn't be allowed to test them. Independent researchers need to design the trials to see whether they're effective. They need to be replicated. If we get all of that right, also what that'll do is encourage drug companies to actually make decent drugs. They spend 20 times more on marketing than they do on research and development on basic science research, right? And then we see the net result of it, Nicola. You know, life expectancy stalled in two, since 2010 in the UK. More people are living with chronic disease. In the US, they've lost two years of life expectancy. It's like, guys, wake up. Like, I asked my colleagues in medical profession, like, okay, if we were doing everything according to the best available evidence, why are our patients getting sicker? I mean, wake up, wake up. And it just seems so simple. And I think that's the problem, right? So food and diet and what you're consuming both mentally and into your you know, mouth physically, that is the answer, but that's not going to make those companies millions and more billions and billions of pounds. And so it's so, it's just, but we've got a rigged system, you see. So what you've got is you've got these big, powerful companies. Because people say to me, well, Asim, who's going to fund this and that? They fund all these different organizations. Money. Well, actually, a couple of things. One is they've made their money from lying to you. So that's illegitimate money. It's black money, right? A lot of it. They then don't pay their taxes or they hide them in tax havens. We've got $3 trillion hidden in tax havens. The money is there. We've got fucking money. It's just in the wrong place. And that money needs to go to government who then need to be a good government that are going to look after that money and the taxes that we pay and manage that money properly. And that means we need elected officials who are there to act in the interest of the public from a place of integrity. There's something I learned when I was a, a trustee of a, a health think tank called the King's Fund, which is a very prestigious independent health think tank. I remember when I joined them, I was like the youngest member to be appointed there. And it was quite a privilege, actually, because I was on this with this group of very eminent, very intelligent, wise people a lot of them older than me, and they all had knighthoods. I was the only person on that, on that group who didn't have a knighthood. I'm not, I'm not into gang. That was interesting. I was like, okay, there's some people who are you know, very special individuals here. And I had to sign a document that I would adhere to something called the Seven Nolan Principles. So the Seven Nolan Principles of Public Life are um, principles that people who work in the interest of the public, so these are doctors, teachers, police officers, and politicians, mm -hmm. right? should in their conduct adhere to these seven principles and there they are selflessness objectivity integrity accountability honesty openness and leadership and leadership means also pointing out poor behavior wherever it occurs i'm obsessed with that yeah. that behaving and acting you know in terms of uh, as a doctor in terms of medical ethics that's what drives me that's what i'm about but it, it, it you know this is i think we've gone astray i think i think i think our uh, I think that, that our, our, our lead, we, we, we lack good leadership we, and people, people can feel that now. Yeah, 100%. There's no, the trust is gone. Yeah. Question for you. Around, you know, social media had a massive, massive play, like, part to play, to play yeah. Yeah, in everybody getting the vaccine. You know, these celebrities were going on there like, thumbs off, I've just had my bat jab. So there was a lot of that. First of all, do you think there are celebrities being paid to do that? Second of all, there are a lot of celebrities I know, and we've had conversations, 
and I have friends who are celebrities who didn't have the vaccine, didn't want it, but would you would never, ever, ever speak up or speak out, even though they are very, very influential. They didn't want to because of the fear of losing their job, losing the brands. What do you say to those people? I think that they have a very important position to play, that they understand their impact and influence, and they just have to speak the truth and not to underestimate the power of their speech. Now, there may be backlash initially, but actually doing something so good and meaningful for society that later on, they will regret not speaking out. I can promise you that earlier. Look at Joe Rogan, right? Joe Rogan interviews Robert Malone, one of the co-inventors of the technology of mRNA vaccines, who himself took the vaccine, got myocarditis, said that we need to stop. Peter McCullough, brilliant cardiologist in the United States, very early on, well before I had looked at the evidence, you know, or seen the evidence that was clear to me, said there's a problem with this vaccine. And when he interviewed them, there was a, you know, there was a big uh, storm uh, around the fact that he, you know, it was portrayed that he was spreading misinformation or giving a platform to people who are spreading misinformation or anti-vaxxers, which is ridiculous. Um, it was a BBC News headline. There were talks about Spotify, you know, potentially withdrawing their sponsorship or support for him. And um, I'm sure, and I spoke to him, and clearly it, was a, it, it had its impact and its stresses on him, but he rode through that and he's doing great now. And he's still the most, you know, he's the number one podcaster in the world. So there will be, there is always a bit of pushback, but, you know, people have to understand it. It's not safe to speak the truth, but it's even less safe to not speak the truth. And I think people need to, and also safety in numbers. I mean, I know many celebrity figures that contact me and are supporting what I'm doing, but they themselves are on their own, feel afraid to speak out. So I think that if we get, if we can coordinate or get more of them speak out together, then this will end overnight. I mean, absolutely. And do you think those celebrities that were promoting it were paid? Or do you think they were just, I think, they believed in the message I, so much? A combination of both. Yeah. I think they probably believed in the message and also they happened to be paid and it kind of works synergistically. And, 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 and I think that has happened for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that really disappointed me, so I told you at the beginning, I'm like, you know, I was, um, my soul music is hard rock and grunge, right? And one of the one of the bands that I was really into, I never got to see them live, I had a ticket for their concert. And um, unfortunately, around the time that the concert was supposed to take place in Manchester, 1994, April, if I remember correctly, Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, yeah. right? Killed himself. And that was, and um, David Grohl was a drummer. I mean, there were, and he then formed the Foo Fighters and I thought, what a phenomenal, phenomenal musician. And I love their music. And, um, and then I, I, you know, I learned that David Grohl was one of the first people to come out in terms of the, in the music industry to say that if you're not vaccinated, you can't come to our gigs. Wow. And even apparently pressurized Taylor Hawkins, who was a drummer who had a cardiac arrest um, to take the vaccine. And from what I know, and I've spoken to a few people close to Taylor Hawkins, including one of the doctors, there is definitely a uh, a strong understanding that the likely cause of his cardiac arrest was a vaccine. And, you know, um, that, you know, is, is disappointing. But, you know, listen, we were all duped. Yeah. So if David ever hears this, David, you need to just look <laughs> at the evidence, right? Yeah. You need to understand this is what happened to you. One of your best mates. It wasn't your fault, but you can't stay silent anymore. And what would you say to people who, so let's say, for example, my mum and dad, they watched the telly, they did what they was told, they've got the jabs, and now they're thinking, gosh, have I got a ticking time bomb in my body? Because it was actually six months, wasn't it? Your dad had the, yeah. the injection, 
and it was six months after that. So in a way, you wouldn't kind of link it because it wasn't like last week and then he had it. You know, what they've got inside them, what what can they do to yeah. help themselves now? It's a great question and it's a difficult one. I think for some reassurance, I think most of the problems of the vaccine, I tell my patients who come to me with the same question, yeah. tend to happen within the first few months, okay. first few weeks to months, most of the severe. Yeah, with one exception. Okay. Coronary artery disease and risk factors for heart disease and acceleration of underlying heart disease that you may not be aware of and suddenly you get angina or you have a car. Now, you know, I just had a, uh, somebody that contacted me a, a few days ago, chap in his 30s. No risk factors, known risk factors, maybe overweight. And um, yeah, he had the jab two years ago and he's now been diagnosed with three vessel coronary artery disease. He needs a bypass operation and he says that the doctors there are baffled to why this has happened. And it's probably that he may have had a bit of very minor furring, you know, he's overweight, or whatever, at that stage. It wouldn't maybe cause him a problem for 20 or 30 years. And suddenly the vaccines accelerated it. And I think that's a mechanism of action that I've been talking about to people to be aware of. Now, what can you do? It still comes irrespective. If you focus on optimizing your lifestyle, your risk of these problems even now is going to be massively reduced. I mean, a lot of my work also is in heart disease reversal, right? And what does that mean? It means eating real food. Mediterranean diet without the starch and the sugar, moderate exercise, and massively doing something for your stress, including up to 40 minutes of meditation a day. Very, very powerful. That's what you should be focusing on. And of course, if you're concerned, go to your doctor, get some tests done. We can do this imaging things that can be done, things checking for risk factors, you know, blood pressure, whether you've got type 2 diabetes. Do you have a cholesterol profile that suggests you've got something called insulin resistance? Um, you know, these are things you can do quite simply. Uh, and if and if you're really worried, then yeah, I mean, then get some imaging done of your heart. Yeah. And for you, Dr. Asim, what's your like, what is your sat here right now for the next like year, two years? What is your vision of what you want to create with what you're doing? Listen, it's a journey. Yeah. There's no end game. And my journey is to create a society where people can have the best opportunity to optimize their mental and physical health, which gives which brings us to actually the definition of health. I talk about uh, when I give my lectures. Listen, I'm not a big fan of the World Health Organization at the moment, partly because they're conflicted. People need to understand they get a lot of their money from industry. Bill Gates is the second largest funder. He's made $500 million from the investments of vaccines. So listen, let's take a rocket science. People work out there's a big problem here in the system. But they have a great definition for health, a state of complete mental, physical and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So we are here to optimize people's mental and physical health. I'm a medium that is learning for myself and then trying to disseminate that information to the public and through populations across the world. And that's why I travel around the world. I speak to policymakers. I try and engage mainstream media to get make sure that that message goes across to millions and not billions of people. If you could skip one message to your dad right now, what would that be? Uh, thank you for being the wonderful human that you are, you were, you gave me the strength to do what I'm doing, so much wisdom. Um, and uh, I miss you more than words can describe. Um, but I also try and look at the positives of what you gave to my life. Because yeah. he was the catalyst for this for you. You know, that In, he changed everything. Yeah, from birth yeah. to now, 100%. Like his, his ideals and how he lived as a man and what he taught me, absolutely, was, was, uh, has got me to this place for sure. Yeah. And my mum as well. What is your take on all of the sudden deaths that are happening all over the world? And especially what seems to be to sports people. Is that the vaccination? So, um, Professor Norman Fenton, who is a very uh, eminent 
expert in risk and statistics had done a substack recently and his own analysis suggests that certainly half of the excess deaths and most of them are cardiovascular or people that are having cardiac arrest, for example, um, can be attributed directly and indirectly to the COVID vaccines. So uh, in my view, a significant contribute, every, obviously every case is different, a significant contributing factor for sure, if not the main factor of these people having excess deaths and heart, cardiac arrest is a vaccine, COVID vaccine, 100%. Yeah, you're a total inspiration. I've got one more question for you, which I literally, with every single podcast, I always ask this final question. And that question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wow. Um, what advice would I give to my younger self? I don't think I'd give my younger self any advice, actually. Because there's a journey we all have to go on. And, you know, whether people listen to advice or not, circumstances will take you down a certain path. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself any... I don't think I'd give my, my younger self any advice. Just keep going. Just keep going, yeah. Very bored. Yeah, one step in front of the other. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and just be aware maybe when the attacks come in, it's, you know, it's, um, it shouldn't stop you on, on the path to the truth. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be tough. But you can do it. Just the very beginning for you. I'm so excited. <laughs>